Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We started looking at this chapter on the first Sunday of February, and we're finally through Peter's sermon. We'll look today at the response to that sermon. As everybody gathered and said, what do we do now? We crucified him, he rose. What's the next step? Peter instructs them along those lines. Acts chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to gladly receive the word. Help us to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Teach us, Lord, to follow the apostles' teaching. Help us to be those knowledgeable guides for others who can answer their questions. Give us the grace that we need to be faithful followers of Christ in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Help me to preach boldly and free all of us from distraction, wandering hearts, fix our hearts on Jesus. Help us to look full in his wonderful face. We pray in his name. Amen. When people came to John and heard him preach repentance, they said, What do we do? How do we follow Christ? How do we show repentance in our calling? John, as we saw there in Luke 3, gave specific advice. Tax collectors, don't overcharge. Soldiers, don't intimidate people. Use the uniform and the sword to bully people and get more money. And if you have extra clothes, ordinary people, if you have two tunics, sell one and give to uh, somebody who has nothing. If you have food, share it. John gives these specific instructions about, here's what repentance looks like in everyday life. A repentant soldier, a repentant (coughs) tunic owner, or food owner, here's how you'll behave. Peter gives much more general instructions. What do you do about the gospel? Well, the baseline is repent. And when you do that, you receive, well, baptism, you receive forgiveness, you receive 
the Spirit. There's one thing you do, as it were, you repent, and three things come to you. You receive three things from God and His church when you respond in this way. How do you respond to the gospel? The short version is repent, be baptized, and live in a way that befits that. The longer version, of course, is take it to heart. As we saw, Peter and, of course, John too, didn't bother denouncing the sins of those people out there. No, they denounced the sins of their audience. They preached to the crowd in front of them about what that crowd was doing wrong. And so John says, right, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Peter says, you crucified this Jesus. God made him Lord and Messiah. You crucified him. And then he goes and sits down. That's the end of the sermon. The people are cut to the heart. Peter ended with a message of condemnation that struck them in their heart. And that's the first thing that we need to focus on. How do we respond to the gospel? Well, the first thing we need to do is take it to heart. What does that look like? Well, we have to recognize, first of all, that sincerity, taking something to heart, actually believing it, actually being serious about it, is totally countercultural. We live in the age of detachment and irony and distance. And if I'm too sincere about anything, everybody takes me for some kind of fool or simpleton. The mark of sophistication is to hold everything at arm's length and laugh at everything. What we call the the mood of ironic detachment. And that mood has been the correct mood, the sophisticated mood, for close to 150 years now in the best circles. That mood is not the mood that Peter was preaching to. That's not the mood that he wanted to see where the critics just laughed and said, great ideas, wonderful message. No. Peter wanted them to take it to heart and they did. He wanted them to take it seriously, to believe it in the core of their being and they did. True citizens of the kingdom respond to the gospel message with heartfelt interest. They were cut to the heart. They knew that they were in trouble. So what did they ask? What shall we do? Somebody who's taken it to heart is looking then for where to put their sin. I'm burdened by my sin. Somebody who hasn't taken it to heart, what are the signs? Well, it's just an intellectual game. I enjoy researching Christian stuff, watching YouTube debates, blah, 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 in order to have information to drop into conversations. Cocktail party type stuff. That's somebody who hasn't taken it to heart. Somebody who's just entertained by it. Somebody who just finds it to be a fun pastime. 
or even, really, somebody who finds it to be their outlet for good deeds. You know, I need something to make my life meaningful. And I have Jesus, and I go to Him when I feel like the other activities of life aren't doing it for me. I might go to the Black Hills, I might watch my favorite movie, or I might go to church. You know, it all depends on what I feel I need on a particular day. That's somebody who hasn't taken the gospel to heart. That's somebody who is a spectator rather than actively involved in listening to Peter preach. We can also see in this world people who take something totally unworthy to heart, such as the performance of their favorite sports team. We all have heard the stories or even know people who, the day after the Broncos lose, they're grumpy. The whole family knows it. They walk around, they've got a nasty attitude. And similarly, if their team wins, life couldn't be better. They're in an expansive mood, they're generous, they're happy. Don't take unworthy things to heart. But take this good news about Jesus, take that to heart. When you do, it'll put you on the path of looking for a particular answer. What do I do about my sin? That will be your overriding concern. More than politics, more than finances, more than the news or sports or intellectual pursuits of other kinds. What do I do about my sin? And of course, that's exactly where the people took it. The audience took it. Men and brethren, what do we do? We crucified Jesus. What's the next step? How do we start to make up for that? How do we fix that? And Peter, of course, answers the question. And as a side point, we should recognize that anyone who's struggling with this question, what do I do about my sin? They need a live human being to answer that question. Peter doesn't say, well, read three chapters of Scripture and 20 pages of a four-volume systematic theology and call me in the morning. There are all kinds of books that, yes, tell us what to do about our sin. Plus podcasts, sermons, pamphlets, tracts, recorded materials of every description. But when you need your questions answered... The last thing you need is for somebody to right, buy you a subscription to the American Theological Library Association. Say, well, here you go. Search the stacks. Or drop you off in front of the Harvard Divinity School Library and say, well, all of your questions are answered in there. Plus questions you didn't know you had. No, they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answers the question. And our goal as believers should to be, be, to be at the place where when somebody comes under conviction of sin and says, what do I do? We know the answer. We can help that person. We can say, here's what you do. <coughs> we need somebody trustworthy to answer our questions in all kinds of areas of everyday life. Our legal questions, our financial questions, our questions about the operation and maintenance of small gasoline engines, 
surely we know that we need somebody who can answer our spiritual questions. That's where the Pentecost crowd was at. What do we do? So Peter tells them. A trustworthy guide in spiritual questions is somebody who will tell you what the apostles said and show you by example what they did. We don't have an apostle to ask. We have their writings. But we have followers of the apostles, our fellow Christians, to whom we can go and say, what do I do? How do I get rid of this sin? How do I deal with this problem, this question? So Peter tells them, here's what you do. Number one, repent. Turn around. Stop going the way you're going and start going a different way. To repent literally means simply to turn. To turn away from sin back to God. That's what repentance is. It's the Latin word. In English, repent comes from Latin. Re means, of course, to do again. And to pent means to think. A pensive person is thinking. A repentant person is thinking again. You think that? Think again. That's what Peter tells them. Change your mind, change your direction. Go down a different path. Come back to God. So repentance is that. It's a turn. It's a change of direction. It's not about hollow promises. It's about making up your mind that you're done going the wrong direction and that you will start going the right direction. Repent. And what are the benefits of repentance? Well, Peter describes them. The first one is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, this is passive. It's not something you can do. He doesn't say repent and baptize yourselves. Repent and be baptized by somebody else. Baptism is something that comes to us from outside. It's a reception of the promises of God. And that's demonstrated by it being administered by somebody else. Now there is an element of you saying, I believe in Jesus and want to follow him. But if that was the only element, you could baptize yourself. Because baptism would be your testimony to what you think. Baptism is primarily God's testimony that he cleanses you from sin, that he washes you with the water of regeneration, that he makes you a new person, a child of God, no longer a child of the devil. So if you repent, if you want to turn away from sin and believe in this Jesus whom you crucified, then you need to be baptized. Receive this gift from Jesus. So Peter didn't say be baptized because baptism saves. He didn't say repent because repentance saves. No, Christ saves. And he saves by giving us repentance, baptism, and these other two things, forgiveness and his spirit. Jesus saves, but the way in which he saves is by calling you to repent, to turn around to be baptized, and then 
to receive the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is not the efficient cause of salvation. Right? Aristotle spoke of the causes. The efficient cause is the, the energy, the force, the thing that does whatever it is. So, right, in terms of the statue, the idea of what the finished statue will look like, that's the final cause, the goal for which the statue is made. And the tools that I use to carve stone, those are the instrumental causes of the statue. Without them, the statue wouldn't exist. But the efficient cause is the sculptor, the one who actually makes the statue. So it is, we call repentance, faith, baptism, these are instrumental causes. Tools in the hand of God Almighty that bring about salvation. God effectually causes salvation. He's the efficient cause through Christ. But he calls us to repent. And he says, if you don't engage in this, Right? Peter doesn't say, what do you do? Sit back and relax. God will save who he's going to save. You guys can go home now. Right? That's not the Christian message. No, the Christian message is God will save who he's going to save and he does that through you repenting and then you receiving these other gifts. And receiving a gift is not entirely passive either. You have to be awake to claim it. In one sense, of course, you could say, well, I got the gift, but I was asleep and I never opened it. But you get the benefit of the gift if you're awake, actively opening it, using it, putting it into your daily life and routine. That's why God chooses to save through means, through repentance, through baptism, through the reception of, of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? It means that God has absorbed into himself the pain of your sin and he will no longer extract that pain out of you. You crucified Jesus. You deserve to die the same painful death that Jesus did because you wrongly killed an innocent man. But when you're forgiven, that means that God no longer holds that against you. God no longer will crucify you for crucifying his son. So repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now Peter seems to indicate that baptism is ordered toward forgiveness. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The philosophers call that an exemplary cause. Not that baptism is the efficient cause that actively takes away your sin, but it's an example of sin being cleansed. If I wash your outside in water, that's like, that's an example of what God is doing as He actually forgives your sins, as He washes your inside with the blood of Christ. So repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the ultimate gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The last and greatest benefit of repentance. God gives you Himself. 
And he does it by giving you his spirit. We talk about this all the time in our society. I tried to give him everything, but I was so busy working so I could give him everything that I never gave him any time with me. When I got to the end of my life, I realized that I didn't know my kids because I was always working. This specifically addresses that. God is not just giving you benefits, but withholding himself. No, he gives you benefits like forgiveness, like baptism. The greatest benefit of all is his own presence, his own person who comes to you in the Holy Spirit. God could give us no greater gift than Himself, and that's exactly who He gives us. So why should you repent? Well, this is what you get if you repent. You get these three benefits, baptism, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit. God Himself becomes yours when you turn from sin and go back to Him. This repentance too is a gift, as Acts will later say. We'll talk about that when we get there. But why? Why else do we do it? Well, Peter gives a reason for these promises in verse 39. Well, why you should repent for the promise, or because the promise is to you, to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, there are a lot of Christians who will tell you that Peter had no business saying these things together. They will tell you that there's a contradiction between the free offer of the gospel and predestination or effectual calling, the idea that God ultimately chooses who's saved. But apparently Peter did not know that, because what does he say? There's a promise, God has made a promise. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see references to the promise just thrown out there. Paul uses this, Hebrews uses it. What is the promise? Well, the promise is the promise of salvation. The promise of God to save his people, to give his son, and pour out his spirit. That's the promise. And who is that promise for? Well, it's for you, the audience, the Judeans, to whom Peter is speaking, the residents of Jerusalem, world Jewry who is there on the day of Pentecost. The promise is for them. And it's not just for them, it's for their children. God works in families. If he makes a promise to you, that promise is also for your kids. He doesn't say, here's a promise, Caleb. I don't have anything for your children. They're on their own. When they turn 18, then they can come and talk to me about whether the promise is for them. Not how God works. He makes a promise and it's to his people, children included. That's why this church doesn't have children's church. That's why we believe in what some call family-integrated 
worship. It's because God's promise is not just for adults, it's also for children. Right? And our, as the battles over integrated schooling in the last century of our nation's history attest, there's a powerful symbolic aspect to simply where somebody goes to receive whatever it is that that institution is offering. If we take all the kids and say, go out, worship of God is not for you, the promise of God is not for you, or it is for you, but it's for you separately, over here in another room, up front for a children's sermon that's different than the everyone sermon. What are we saying? The promise is for you, and there's a different kind of promise for your children. There's a different content of promise for the children. Peter says the promise is for you and your children. We looked a few weeks ago at that passage in Nehemiah that describes an Old Testament worship service. Remember it says everyone came along with the little ones and the babies and the old people. They were all there to hear the word of God proclaimed. Peter announces God's promise for world Judaism, for world Jewry, for their children, and for those who are far off. Right? The Jews were familiar with the idea that the promise was for them and for their children. Peter says now it's breaking out of the borders of Israel and it's going to people who are geographically distant, and that's what the rest of Acts is about. Promise to those who are far away, including in places like Gillette, Wyoming, that Peter and the other apostles never heard of. But I have no concept of where that is. Is that beyond the Scythians? Right? The Scythians are the end of the world in what we would call Kazakhstan, somewhere out in that direction. Well, we, to the apostles, would certainly be those who are far away. God's promise is for the geographically distant, not just those who have the privilege of living in the Holy Land. It's great to live in the Holy Land. But God's promise is no longer limited to that land. So Peter describes the group for whom God's promise is by those first three terms, Judeans, their children, those far away, those who live in other places, other territories, other regions. And then he describes it a fourth way. As many as the Lord our God will call. Who is the promise for, Peter? Well, he says it's for everyone that God will call. Now, there's two different ways to read that. You can read that in terms of the general call. Everyone who hears the preaching of the gospel the promises for them. But you can also read it in terms of the specific call, everyone whom God actually saves, right? Romans 8, whom he foreknew, he also called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. Peter might be using call in that narrower sense too. And everyone whom God calls effectively Everyone whom God saves, in other words, that's who the promise is for. And in the narrow sense, certainly that's true. Ultimately, 
Not every Judean believed. Not every Judean child believed. Not everyone geographically distant believed. But everyone, effectively called by God, did believe. And so in this strong sense, that's who the promise is for. Right, so what does Peter put together here? The free offer of the gospel. You, your children, anyone far away. It's for all those people. And then at the end of the sentence he shoves in, and for those whom God chooses to save. That's who this is for. God's promise to save his people by sending his son and pouring out his spirit. Jesus, of course, spoke the same way. Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Yes, such was your gracious will. Matthew 11. And then what's the next verse? Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Election, free offer of the gospel, right next to each other. As we saw last week, God delivered up Jesus, but wicked men killed him. This is not a competitive account of God's sovereignty and human freedom where every inch of territory God gains is an inch of territory we lose. No, they work together. Promise is for you. Believe it. But ultimately, the promise is for everyone that God calls. Everyone he justifies. Everyone he glorifies. That's the ultimate recipients of the promise. And Peter provides, beyond these benefits of God's promise and the forgiveness and the Spirit, he provides one final reason. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, which Luke didn't write down because that would have made the book of Acts twice as long as it is. Many other words, he testified, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Why should you listen to God's promise? Because your generation is perverse. In terms of historical analogy, it's well known or should be well known that the time in history to which the contemporary church most closely corresponds is actually the first century. The conditions of today are not like the Reformation era. They're not like the 19th century. They're not like the 5th century or the Middle Ages No, the conditions of today, once again, in most of the world's great cities, Christians are a small, completely weird minority who don't have access to the levers of power, who are regarded as strange newcomers, who seem very much out of tune with the spirit of the age, and yet, at the same time, there's tremendous growth in the Christian faith, much of it very ignorant, very syncretistic. All kinds of people in our country and of course in other places in Africa and South America and Asia will tell you that they're Christians and that it's very important to them to be Christians. And if you drill down a little bit and ask what that means, you'll find that it sounds a lot like their tribal religion or what the broader culture around them is saying with the thin veneer of Jesus layered on top. Well, that was also the case. You just have to read the letters of the New Testament. What was going on in Corinth? 
what was happening at these churches in Revelation. We talked about Sardis this morning. They're dead. But nonetheless, they were there. There's a lot of growth. And there's also widespread exhaustion in the broader culture. And a feeling that whatever it is that we're doing is totally unsustainable. That we need some kind of renewal or we're finished. That same feeling was in the air in the first century. As the pagans looked around at their culture and what they had built and said, we can't go on much longer. That's exemplified, for one thing, of all the Caesars in the first century, all childless. Augustus was Julius Caesar's nephew. And then Tiberius, who ruled during the life and death of Christ, who was on the Roman throne when Peter preached this sermon, he was some kind of distant relation of Augustus. And then Tiberius is succeeded by Caligula, who's also not Tiberius's son, and so on. That same symptom of falling birth rates of people who don't believe in the future enough to have children is all around us. The church today is like the church in the first century. And to us, the apostolic word comes and says, save yourselves from this perverse generation. Yes, every generation of fallen human beings is perverse. And if you're looking back to the Reformation era or the Pretty Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening or any other time in church history and saying, if only we lived then. No, to you, Peter's word comes and says, save yourselves from that perverse generation. But our generation is certainly perverse. And we need to be saved from it. Not in the sense that if you believe in Jesus, he'll take you home to heaven right away and you won't have to live with this generation. But rather in the sense that you will get an eternal perspective. You'll get an unchanging standard by which to reckon up the perversity of our own culture. When you have Jesus and his spirit, you have a point of reference outside and beyond your own generation. So whether the world calls you a baby boomer, a millennial, generation X, doesn't matter in that those generations may have their own characteristics. But we belong to something different. We belong to the people of God. Psalm 12, you will keep them, you will preserve them from this generation forever. That's God's promise. If you repent, if you're baptized, if you find forgiveness of sins in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, who works in you faith, hope, and love, you're saved from this perverse generation. You're delivered from these first century conditions that are returning in the 21st century. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to truly repent. Help us not just to say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore, but to mean it. 
Help us to walk away from our sin, to turn our back on it, to no longer indulge in the besetting sins that have held us captive for so long. Help us to save ourselves from this perverse generation, not in the sense that we become our own saviors, but in the sense that we fly to Jesus, the real Savior. We thank you, Father. We don't have to look to the greatest generation or the silent generation or the boomers or the millennials or anybody else, but that we have your Son, the eternally begotten of the Father, who lives and reigns at all times, and that He is our Savior. Help us, therefore, to respond rightly, to repent and believe to walk out our baptism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.